Welcome to the Market Leaders Podcast, where you'll find valuable marketing and business development insights from innovative thinkers. The podcast series is brought to you by Ackert, the company behind Pipeline Plus. Tired of overcomplicated CRM? Pipeline Plus is the easiest business development tool you'll ever use. It helps you organize and focus on your most important relationships with instructional e-learning tutorials and concrete suggestions from our built-in AI. Pipeline Plus gives you everything you need to get new business from your existing network. Visit ackertinc.com to learn more. Hello and welcome back to the Market Leaders Podcast. I'm David Ackert and today my guest is Colin Keefe, who is a partner in the M&A chair at Fitzpatrick, Lentz and Buba. His firm has served businesses and individuals throughout the Lehigh Valley for over 30 years. Colin, great to have you on the show today. Great to be here. So let's start with a little bit of context on your firm. Tell us about its origins. So it was founded in 1988 by Mr. Fitzpatrick, Lentz, and Buba. Mr. Fitzpatrick is a real estate lawyer. Mr. Buba is a corporate transactional lawyer. And Ed Lentz is an estates and trust attorney. They have been joined by a number of litigators. We now have a domestic group, um, employment. We deal with some IP. And so we've become a full-service corporate transactional firm. We are participants in many of the largest transactions in the Lehigh Valley. We represent companies and individuals uh, across the Lehigh Valley from your small local mom and pop businesses, which we still represent and are an important part of our identity, I'll say, (laughs) Um, to your middle market businesses. And then we do a number of things, both local and otherwise, for the large companies around here. Um, The Lehigh Valley has a population of about 855,000 people these days. Uh, so it's grown quite a bit over the years and the, the firm has grown with it. That's great. So when you talk about this range of clientele, it begs the question, you know, how do you position your services so that they're appropriate both for the mom and pop, who are probably going to be a little more price sensitive, and the Fortune 500 companies, the middle market, right? You know, some of these have budgets, legal budgets. Others are very price conscious, and they haven't even anticipated in many cases needing legal work. So how do you approach all of that? How do you think about that in a way that enables you to be sort of all things to all people? It's interesting, and it's been tough. I will say that, as I mentioned before, our position and identity in the Lehigh Valley is important to us. The Lehigh Valley is important to us, and we never want to lose our connection to the Lehigh Valley. Now, I will also say that many of our clients are outside the Lehigh Valley. We no longer think of ourselves as a local firm uh, or even necessarily a regional firm. I'm doing a deal with a UK buyer of a Boston company right now that doesn't have the slightest thing to do with the Lehigh Valley whatsoever. It's just a middle market transaction, and we've become active in middle market M&A. And that's a great thing, but... At the same time, we don't want to lose who we are in our identity. I will say the base, the foundation of our structure starts with those local businesses. And we have a graduated rate structure. We have three standard rates with a delta in between those rates. And the bottom of that rate structure is what we feel is an appropriate level for our services and our transactional real estate, et cetera, services for the local businesses and even individuals, um, high net worth individuals generally, but not always, <laughs> um, you know, certainly not in our domestics groups or our estate groups. You know, if you're a school teacher and you need a will, come on down. We're happy to help sure. you. 
Sure. Um, so the bottom of our rate structure is priced appropriately for those businesses. Then we have a middle market rate above that. And then above that, we have a large transactional rate. I will say that those two higher rates fall more progressively behind what would be appropriate for the sophistication of our services and what our competitors are charging for services that are commensurate to ours. We are undercharging our large clients. Having said that, we feel that it is appropriate to do that to maintain our position as a firm with our roots here in the Valley and to provide high value services to our clients. We're still charging a little more for the highly sophisticated transactions, but generally we have found we're charging a lot less than our competitors, but we're comfortable with that and we, we don't want to forget who we are and where we came from. Thank you for sharing all that. You know, I'm always fascinated by this topic because a lot of how firms justify their rates tends to come down to a couple of factors, right? One is looking at what other firms are charging. And in some cases as well, we're certainly not charging what the you know top AMLAW white shoe firms are charging, but we're charging something that ultimately is going to be perceived as a value to the client while still being fair to us, right? That's kind of where we try to land in the middle there in the sweet spot. But it's all kind of going on inside the lawyer's heads. Do you know? I mean, there isn't a real sort of scientific analysis here. It's not like firms are taking all of the billing rates of all of their competitors and really looking at where they sit in the marketplace. Oh, we're a little more sophisticated than this other firm. So we're going to charge a little more than them. And we're a little less sophisticated than this other firm. Or maybe we don't have the you know reputation of that firm by about 30%. So we'll charge 30% less, right? It's, it's pretty fuzzy in terms of where firms land. And ultimately, I think a lot of it just comes down to lawyers price themselves at the intersection of fear and greed right? What can we get away with charging versus what's not too much so that we lose market share, we lose, you know, we jeopardize our relationship with our client. And I think that this ultimately is true in any industry where you're charging by the hour or you're, you know, setting a price that where it's completely up to you what that dollar number ultimately is. It's how do we maximize our profit? How do we ensure that we are really getting as much as we deserve but also how do we ensure that we're not pushing over a line somewhere? And because there's no playbook, because again, it's really subjective at the end of the day, I'm just curious as to how that process works out uh, at your firm and, and what the thinking is there. We try to be a little more scientific than that. Really? Tell me. Uh, so we, in our most recent round of rate, increases, which in light of inflation were a little higher than what we have traditionally done in the past. So in the past, we've sort of had, you know, we're going to go up 4% a year and this and that. And it was fairly formulaic, right? We tried, we did um, analogize ourselves to a more traditional manufacturing business. An hour of our time is our product, is a widget. The, the materials that go into that widget are our talent and our overhead. The cost of talent, especially, um, and overhead goes up. And in order to not compromise on the material inputs and thus compromise the services we're providing, we have to charge more. I mean, again, you stick with the analogy to the widget manufacturer. If costs are going up, you can raise prices, increase volume, or lower costs, often by reducing your raw material costs and oftentimes getting worse raw materials. Um, in our case, that would be worse talent. That would end up compromising the level of the services we have to offer. You know, And so that's sort of how we looked at it. We didn't want to compromise 
on the level of service we offer. We decided that while price is certainly important, and price was very important to, to some of the more senior attorneys at my firm, price was very yeah. important. At every firm, at every firm. But it came down to a discussion of unless we raise rates, we won't be able to hire or retain, which is actually just as big an issue as hiring, our, our people and the level of services we have to offer will suffer. And we would rather offer excellent services at an appropriate rate than satisfactory services at a cheap rate. No, that's that's a fair answer. And I appreciate that a lot of thought has gone into arriving at that number and that there are a lot of forces at work here. You know, it's ultimately an exercise in compromises. I'm curious, what indicators or data points have you looked at from your client base to make sure that your rate isn't too low, it isn't too high? Do you know, is there any kind of a feedback loop there that helps validate that internal analysis? Less than you would hope for. <laughs> um, getting that sort of market data is always a struggle. You look at a couple things. Obviously, we track numbers very closely. Looking at new client origination, you're looking at lost clients, you're looking at pay rates, delays, you know, your overall collections. I find that to be an excellent indicator. You're looking at anecdotal client comments and complaints. Our firm is not so large that we can't get a sort of feel of overall commentary from the client base. And so, you know, we're looking at all that. We just did our most recent increase at the six-month mark this year at the beginning of the third quarter. Uh, and so these numbers are just starting to come in now, uh, and, and we're looking closely at them. You know, we have not seen any negative indicators based on that increase so far. At least we think we haven't. So the other Nothing the, overt, at least. Well, the other thing is sorting the signal from the noise. Right. Obviously, the third quarter wasn't as strong as the second quarter, and the fourth quarter will be less strong still. Is that rates? Is that the economy? Is it both? Is it all the economy? We're working through it. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I, I appreciate your candor. I appreciate that it is a moving target. You indicated earlier, you mentioned that you know there are more senior partners, the owners of the firm. Obviously, they're always going to be hypersensitive to this notion of rates. And uh, many of them have been practicing long enough now that you know they were sort of forged in an era where one didn't really think this hard about something like rates. In fact, it may even have been considered uh, impolite to have the conversation. And so I'm curious, you know, how do you navigate partners who perhaps are reluctant to raise rates or adjust rates as you say, the costs are going up. We have to make sure that we're meeting the needs that uh, our inventory, as you say, demands. So uh, how do we navigate those partners who perhaps are concerned that clients will leave if we go above a certain threshold? So for us, it was fortunately, in some respects, self-evidently necessary to raise rates in the most recent round due to some inputs that once we sort of at a firm partners meeting, which we have quarterly, went through the logic behind it, there was, I would say, a vibrant discussion, but limited pushback in the end. A few factors are for the last, in 2021 and 2022, we were extremely busy to the point where we were trying very hard to hire. We were doing everything we could to bring people in. And every one of us was working more hours than we intended to or were comfortable with. And got to the point where responsiveness and turnaround time on our work became a real challenge. I'm not going to say it suffered, but getting to the point where it didn't suffer required a lot of sleepless toll. nights. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it took, sure its, took toll. its toll on the lawyers. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that it was unsustainable from a sort of stamina perspective. People saw that. We were also 
while we did do some hiring, we had an unprecedented level for us of departures, right? We really never had any departure. We, we've had very few up until the last two years of unexpected departures, I'll say, um, which is great for a firm of almost 40 lawyers. But now we are competing with national entities on a remote work basis. And we lost one to a fusion company <laughs> and another to Uber. And this was a new arena of competition for services that had not been in play before. And we had to adjust our compensation um, in order to uh, counteract that. And in order to do that, as I said before, if you look at it as a business, rates have to go up. And so we did manage to couch it in moral terms of we would rather compromise on rates than on the quality of our services. And that argument really seemed to go a long way with the older set. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So speaking of talent and talent retention, you know, this has also been a challenge for many firms in recent history here. So the good news is you've raised your rates, you've adjusted, you're matching what the market uh, seems to demand, especially given the increasing costs of talent. How have you been able to attract and retain talent? I mean, as a 40-lawyer firm, you obviously can't compete with what the top AMLAW firms are offering. So what are some of the perhaps intangibles or you know, maybe some of the positioning that you use to ensure that quality talent ultimately ends up at your firm? Yeah, so it's hard to fight the cliches when you get into this arena. Having said that, for us, and again, even saying the cliches are true is almost a cliche. But my personal experience, I came from a white shoe firm in Manhattan, and I've been here for about a decade. We certainly do offer a superior work-life balance than a white shoe AMLA 100 firm. That's just mathematically the case. So let's move beyond cliche and get into specifics. So what does that mean? Is the billable hour requirement lower? And if so, by roughly what percentage? So the billable hour requirement is probably 10 to 15% lower here than it would be at a place like that, depending on the firm, et cetera. There are not dire consequences if that requirement isn't met. There is a low enough number of associates that we have in a feel for and an understanding for what the associates are doing and why their hours are what they are or aren't. So while we pride ourselves on responsiveness, it is simply the nature of our firm and our practices and our client base that it tends to be a lot more limited to work hours. The number of hours takes its toll, but the always on aspect of it, I think, can take just as much of a toll, if not more. And we don't have a lot of that. I mean, I tend to work late into the night. You know, I go home at 5.30 or 6. I see my kids, we hang out, you know, and then I log back on after I put them down and I work from like 9.30 to 11, right? So we have the flexibility to do it however you want. And the nature of most of our practices, M&A being something of an exception, is just that the real estate isn't going anywhere by Monday. Right. If you're in a development project for a million square foot warehouse, that warehouse is going to be built in 2026. And everyone's going to make hundreds of million dollars, and that's great, but it doesn't need to be dealt with tonight. Right. <laughs> um, so the nature of our firm and a lot of our practices is just that the always-on requirement is not quite as bad. As I said, the hourly requirement is lower. I also think, and it's impossible to avoid the cliches here, but I truly do think this, that we are a more collegial environment, a more family-friendly environment. We are closer to each other. And that is a function of the people here and a function of the fact that it's a 40-lawyer firm and not a 500-lawyer firm. 
Um, and finally, we have the Lehigh Valley itself, which is simply a wonderful place to live, to raise a family. The cost of living here is dramatically lower than New York or Philadelphia or any of these other places. The commutes are dramatically shorter, which is a big factor in, in your life. You know, our average commute is 15 minutes. Our schools here are excellent. Real estate is a third of what it would be in North Jersey or Westchester County, et cetera. So of course, economics is important, but we have found that given all those factors that the economics we're offering, we've done quite well in hiring our summer associates. We've recently upped the number of associates we're hiring and we're able to recruit pretty well. So departing from the cliches a bit and not to discount anything you said, but you know, you also have a housing assistance program, a mentoring program. Talk a little bit about those intangibles or perhaps not so intangible in the, in the case of housing assistance. Yeah. So we do have a housing assistance program. We have a number of connections through our clients that allow us to uh, assist our associates in finding a place to rent and then with the actual rent itself. And then in terms of mentoring, we have both a formal and an informal mentoring program. Every associate has a formal mentor. And then again, by the nature of who we are and the fact that it's a smaller firm, our ratio of associates to partners is inverted. You know, every associate is serving multiple partners, and there is, quite simply by a function of mathematics, several orders of magnitude more opportunity to learn from partners and have personal interaction with partners and clients than there is at an AMLAW 100 firm. And so there's a tremendous opportunity to learn. There's always a plethora of people to ask questions, and sometimes I wonder if our associates get tired of being taught too much. <laughs> It's, it's certainly there's certainly not a lack of mentoring and teaching here. That's great. So uh, I'm curious. You know, you've figured out your rates for this year. You've got the talent pool. You've got the various mechanisms and messaging to attract the right people to the firm. All of this to tee up a successful next year. What do you anticipate? for the next year. You mentioned earlier that second quarter was strong, third quarter maybe a little less strong, and of course, fourth quarter a little less. Are we seeing a trend here? We are seeing starting end of September, beginning of October, we have seen a slight reduction in deal flow. That has taken us from at a point where we were unsustainably overworked to a point where we're just busy. Right. You know, I mean, no one is sitting around. No one is waiting for the next deal to come in. Um, but the pressure has eased a little bit. A lot of that was in your shorter term real estate churn. Some of that has taken a bit of a backseat due to interest rates. For us, it's not the economy in general. It's, it's almost purely just interest rates. You know, as a transactional firm with a lot of M&A, real estate, things of that nature, interest rates drive a lot of our transactions. And so while we've seen some easing in that respect, for my practice, I've actually found the M&A, we have several large deals on tap. Companies have cash on hand and are making acquisitions and sellers are still active. And we have seen M&A is probably just as strong as it always has been. You read things and you see studies and this and that, there's sees a softening of the overall market. But there's so many vagaries in that when it comes to any individual firm. I mean, it depends on the region. It depends on your client base. It depends on, for a firm our size, if you bring in two quarter billion dollar deals in a quarter, I mean, those suck up a tremendous amount of time and energy and effort. And what could be a, a softening of the market is because of a couple circumstances of timing, you're quite busy through that period. So we have not seen any softening in the M&A. And then a lot of our real estate, as I mentioned, 
mentioned before, we have a lot of long-term real estate development. You don't stop developing your million square foot warehouse and you don't stop the permitting process because of a brief downturn in the market, right? I mean, you're not even going to start construction until 2024. Everything is full speed ahead in terms of the longer term real estate development. So while we have seen a reduction to what I would call comfortably busy levels, and we anticipate that through, I would say, the first quarter, maybe two quarters of 2023, we anticipate probably being at about this level. We are staying in a hiring posture and are trying to prepare ourselves for coming out the back end of this and being in a position talent-wise to return to the demand levels of the last two years in the back half of 2023. Makes sense. Well, it sounds like you're overall optimistic about the future and that you feel that the firm is well positioned to take advantage of the winds, however they blow. I absolutely do. We've had our issues with uh, hiring retention, just like everyone else. And it's a struggle across the industry. And I think our response to that has been to, even if the winds are changing a little bit, we're going to stay full speed ahead and we're going to keep hiring through the downturn. And hopefully it's an opportunity to pick up a couple other people that uh, some more short-sighted firms let go (laughs) or pass on. And, And hopefully we'll be able to take advantage of the opportunity. Yes, hopefully to your advantage. Well, that's great. Colin, I so appreciate uh, your time and sharing your perspective on a range of topics today and uh, really wish you all the success in the year ahead. Uh, You as well. Thank you very much. It's been great speaking to you. Today's episode was brought to you by Ackert, the company that solves business development problems for professionals around the world. Visit ackertinc.com to learn more about our consulting, coaching, and technology solutions.